Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 2. I only have half the passage on the insert that I'll read, but you will need your Bibles open to Isaiah 2 as we'll look at all the verses. Uh, You can use your electronic version, of course, and then you have a pew Bible as well. Isaiah chapter 2. The issue uh, facing God's people was not unique in the time of Isaiah. It's a cycle that has that occurred in the life of God's people, goes on today to some degree as well. Uh, They basically looked more like the world than they looked like God's people. Part of this was just because there is a lure about the world and about temporary things and the seeming joy that comes from those things. There is also the desire for security, and there was a feeling that among God's people at this time that they needed the alliances of pagan nations who were the enemies of God more than they needed God's strength. Uh, They were very nervous when they saw the northern kingdom get taken captive and assimilated by the Assyrians. And so the southern kingdom of Judah and its capital, Jerusalem, uh, they were very concerned about the same thing happening to them. And they started to waffle about their trust in God and rather look towards uh, alliances with these enemy nations Uh, that their security would come from man and not from God. And this is a constant challenge for believers. Isaiah is writing to alert them to their waywardness, their wrong thinking, because their wrong thinking was causing them to make priorities for themselves in their lives uh, that were not becoming to God. And they robbed joy, they robbed growth. All these things came about as a result of their sin. This translates to any day, but there is some particular application we see as we study this text. Here as I read, starting at verse 12 of Isaiah chapter 2, I'll read to verse 22 as we begin this morning. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan against all the lofty mountains and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish and against all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day, and the idols shall utterly pass away, And people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For of what account is he? Let's pray. Lord, the words of David mesh certainly with the words of Isaiah here. What is man that you are mindful of him? Here. You tell us to stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. Yet, when we get in a bind, we look to man for the answer. When we stress about what other people think, we're looking to man 
for approval. Lord, give us clear perspective on the difference between you and man. Help us not to mold our lives to please others rather than to please you. Help us not to be so impressed with the meager glory of man, especially when through Christ you have allowed us to begin to behold true glory in yourself. Guide us as we study your word and change us as a result of what we read and hear. In Jesus' name, amen. There are many, many examples or classic pictures of man's arrogance and our trust in man's ingenuity, man's genius, man's glory. The classic picture of how man's arrogance will lead him to do foolish things is found most clearly in the sinking of the Titanic. The Titanic was a ship unlike any others before it was built in 1912. The engineers and the financiers were so proud of their creation that they famously spoke openly about it being unsinkable. And we all know the story well and chuckle a little bit about it. The Titanic embodied a spirit of invulnerability that was characteristic of those times, and it's really characteristic of mankind. At the beginning of the maiden voyage, one of the deckhands was asked whether the ship was really unsinkable, and he replied famously, God himself could not sink this ship. Now, we know that's foolish. We realize that because we watched what happened. We've seen it over and over again, the annals of history, movies made about it. It's the picture of what happens when you trust in man. It's futile. It always ends up poorly. It's extreme, but it gives us a picture. What about that particular event? It was the unfounded trust in man's genius that caused the captain of the ship to drive it too fast into the dark, cold night. You see how the order works. An unfounded trust or confidence or belief drives us to do foolish things. If our perspective is wrong or we have a misplaced trust or reliance, it will lead to choices that coincide with that misplaced trust. And it, it will end up badly. Uh, it will end up harshly. That's what happens for the people of God as they start to look at the nations around them and care more about man's opinion, man's power, man's force, man's influence. What could happen to them if they don't comply? What they ought to seek after as evidenced by the values of man. It's man, it's man, it's man. And they're so concerned with man that they forget the God who has redeemed them and sustained them. Through a combination of fateful human decisions on that night in 1912, all based on a confidence in man's ability to build an unsinkable ship. Within 40 minutes, it sank, and 1,500 people died. Proverbs 16 reminds us that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That word haughty describes prideful man, and it comes up in the passage here with Isaiah. Misplaced confidence often contributes to the decisions we make. And when we make decisions or life choices based on this misplaced trust, we run into very difficult problems. In fact, what you see evidenced here is a repeating theme among the prophets 
a clear understanding of man's place, when that's gathered, when we really understand our place as God sees it and says it, that serves to safeguard us from tragic misplacement of life priorities. When we know who God is and what he calls us to, it helps us make decisions on the smallest level. I mean, every little decision we make, even the big ones as well, they all have to relate to our understanding of who God is in our life compared to who we are, who other people are. It seems so simple when I say it, but I even know for myself that so many of the choices I make are not based on what God's will might be, but based on what someone else might think or what everybody else is doing, so I must need to do it, or what everyone else has, so I should need to have it. A clear understanding of man's place will safeguard us from a tragic misplacement of life priorities. It's interesting, though, as we begin this passage, starting at verse 1. It's interesting how Isaiah approaches this problem of trusting in man more than God. He doesn't go right into the difficult words that I read earlier, starting at verse 12. He doesn't start right into a word of judgment. But rather, he reminds the people of God's sovereign power and intention, what God will do, what we can be sure will come to pass in his time. He starts with a reminder of God's plan for the future. He reminds the people about what only God can do. He reminds us that God is working all things together for his glorious purposes. And no person, no man, no nation, no anything will thwart it. Let's look at the first five verses. And we see this glorious certainty of what God will do in the future. And how knowing the future is sure in God will motivate us to obedience now. You see what he's doing? He's not just speaking a word of judgment for the sake of it. He is wanting to tell them the truth so their behavior will change, so that their devotion would alter. It would turn away from man and to God, and they would obey. That's the desire of the prophet, that they, the people of God would obey God's word. And he reminds them of what is absolutely sure. Things are shifting around them, uncertainty everywhere. They're anxious, they're nervous, they're stressed. But be sure that God will do this work. And that's what he describes in these opening verses. Look there with me, starting at verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. This is a descriptive of the people of God, Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Now, there's echoes of the Abrahamic covenant here, what was promised to Abraham many, many years before, coming to pass in a time when it sure did not look like the people of God were having an impact on the world in any way. But things were going to come about that God would bring about in the future that are sure, and that knowledge should help the people of God reestablish their identity in the present. When it would happen is not important but it will happen, and we want to be on the right side of what God is doing. Very practical motivator for the people of God to obey, to turn from the idols that they had bowed to. Things were desperate. The glory of a nation called out by God was not a realistic picture in the days of Isaiah's writing. The passage says this will come to pass in the latter days. Now, To understand what is meant by the latter days, you have to take into account who's writing, when he's writing, who he's writing to. All these things are important to understand exactly what he means. Here in Isaiah, and 
also with most of the prophets, when they speak of the latter days, especially writing so far before the coming of Christ, they mean to say when Messiah comes, when God fulfills ultimately his covenant to send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent, when he sends Messiah, the ultimate fulfiller of all God's covenant promises. Those are the latter days. Now, here's an important part of understanding prophecy, especially Old Testament prophecy. I mentioned this illustration to you before, but it's important for us to gather again, I think. If you're standing on the top of a mountain and you look across the, scape of the, the mountainscape, you will see dozens, maybe more than dozens, of these huge peaks. And they all seem, as you look at them, although you see them uh, in multi-dimensions and they look gorgeous because the shading of the sun and the way that the the tree line works, and it's a beautiful sight, but they all do look pretty close together. You only know when you drive around the mountainscape that there are huge gaps between these mountain peaks. They go way down and way back up, but when you're looking at them straight on, you can't see that. The prophet is simply relaying to the people of God what is true that God will do. He doesn't say the timetable for each of these prophetic pictures that he has. God gives him a vision of what God will do, and he tells it in totality. There may be big gaps between aspects of what he sees coming, but when Messiah comes, the latter days have come, these things will start to come to pass. And the people of God at this time period look ahead to that. Now, here's a beautiful thing about reading Isaiah today. We have the benefit of the scripture, the canon of scripture being closed. Jesus having come, sending his apostles to record his teachings for us so we can understand the Old Testament and how Jesus fulfills everything that was predicted and pictured. And so as Jesus has come, and as I read what he says will come to pass, you'll notice some of this has already begun. You'll already see that this is no longer a day where just one nation hears the oracles of God, but rather because of the promise to Abraham that all nations would be blessed, Messiah comes, the latter days upon us, and Messiah is known across the globe. Nations and tribes and tongues know of Christ. Now, ultimate consummation has not happened yet, but we are well on our way as the whole of the world now has witness of the gospel somewhere in it. Look what it says in verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up among, above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Now, what a different picture in the way they're supposed to relate with the nations around them at that time. They're supposed to isolate so they could build up their strength and their witness, if you will. But rather, there will be a day when that will no longer be the case. Messiah will come, and there will be an opening of the way so that all people in all nations can hear of the message of the gospel. They'll want to come to hear it because God will prompt them to do so. That's what you're looking forward to, Israelites. So don't bow down to the Assyrians, knowing the glorious future that God will bring. Don't trade in a, uh, for an eternal truth, an eternal reality for some temporal uh, security you think you're going to get. God's going to do this work. Verse 3, more of the picture. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that, he, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. What a picture of the nations desiring to hear the witness of God coming to them. And you may say, well, that's not the case, because we certainly live in a place where I don't feel like that's the appetite of the people here. 
But if you talk to missionaries, talk to missionaries who bring Bibles for the first time to a tribe that's in Indonesia, wait to see or watch to see what they react like when they see the Word of God coming. God prompts people to want to know the gospel and know how to know God aright. And Christians have that message for them. And he's working that in the world. And he'll bring it to final and ultimate perfect conclusion for sure. But recognize the latter days with Messiah having come and we see the work of the Holy Spirit expanding the gospel proclamation and people coming to him. It's a glorious time to be alive, that's for sure. Even for all the difficulties we may have at a given location or the church may be under persecution in a certain spot, none of that stops the desire of the nations as God calls them to himself. It says in verse 3, For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. This is an embodiment of all God's commands. God's word goes forth from his people, and people come. And that's the task of the church, no matter what the situation is. Proclaim his word. And God will draw people to hear that living word, the word that feeds us so that we hunger no more. Many who are strangers and foreigners will become part of God's kingdom and citizenship. That's the work that God will do. He is doing. In Isaiah's time, they needed to hear this to stay strong in the midst of all the pressure they were receiving. Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. What a picture of God's people teaching and proclaiming God's word and God drawing people from every tribe and every tongue. Interestingly, the prophet Micah has almost the exact beginning to chapter 4 in his prophecy that we read here in Isaiah. And that's because it's the same Holy Spirit who inspires the prophet to write about the same future reality. Verse 4. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares. What does that mean? We'll come back there. And their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Certainly this is in the future to come to pass by God's work. In the, in the consummation of all things, for sure, that the gospel of such impact... And there will be such a transformation and restoration worked by God that the swords that were used to kill people will be turned into plowshares so they can plow the fields and feed people. Spears won't be used for stabbing people, but they'll be turned into pruning hooks to tend the crops so that people could be fed. It's like a return to Eden. No more need for war, no more need to plan for war, to strategize or have weapons of war. Now we'll get the full fruit of the earth. We'll be able to use that old stuff to help people. Eventually, the gospel will have such an impact that the weapons of war will be changed into instruments for fruitfulness. In God's time and by God's work, how it exactly looks remains to be seen, and we long to see it. But it will happen. God will do this work. And because he'll do this work, that gives us an ability to be strong now, knowing that our Father is sovereign. Verse 5. Here is the appeal in light of what God will do. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Isaiah knows the situation. He knows how difficult it is, how anxious the people are. 
And he says, nevertheless, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. No matter what the situation, people of God, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Man doesn't have light. God is light. We walk in the light of the Lord. Whatever the case, the chief catalyst for this transformation is the declaration of God's word. And so we proclaim the light of the Lord and we walk in it. Now, why is this picture of hope given in the first five verses? Well, the people were in need of a tangible encouragement in their situation. Uh, In the midst of destruction, even destruction that was brought about by their own actions, they needed a certain hope. Isaiah, as one commentator says, was called to proclaim terrible judgment, but visions of a future restoration helped bring consolation of hope. Calvin says in his comments about this passage, as they were to languish in captivity, and as their minds were shaken by a succession of varied calamities, and at length were almost overwhelmed with despair by the dreadful desolation and confusion they were seeing, they might a hundred times have fainted if they had not been upheld by this prophetic picture given in the first verses of chapter 2. The nations will become eager and open to worshiping the true God rather than trying to compel us to worship their gods. A beautiful diversity of the races and nations joined in worship of God. That's the final picture God's working things to. The sweep of the gospel will transform sinful humanity as God does his work. The surety of the future will help us with difficulty today. And that's the hope for Christians in every way. Having an unprecedented week, at least from the time I've been here, two funerals for people under 45 in the span of seven days. But what was the unifying theme is union with Christ gives meaning to everything we do in our lives, even if they're short. And I couldn't help think, I was, I was, praise God for the testimonies of the lives that we celebrated because they were lives united to Christ. They were lives that, with God's grace, focused on that which lasts, that which is eternal, which is God and people, the people God has placed in their lives. And they saw selflessness as the way to, to imitate their Savior. And that's why they built into other people's lives. And they have such a legacy because it's in Christ. But I thought what gives us hope is those who are bereaved, those who grieve the loss, is that we know the resurrection's true. We know that ultimately the resurrection will happen, so that helps us today. So knowing the future has profound impact on our decisions, our behaviors, our thoughts, how we feel, what we do. This is what Isaiah tries to do with the people of God, remind them of what will come, the glorious certainty of what God will do, what he'll do in the future, will motivate us to obedience now. Now, starting at verse 6, he tells what they needed to hear and what we need to hear about the glory of man. Now, you'll notice that I make as this point, the lure of man-made glory, and I put glory in quotations. That's because compared to real glory, God's glory, anything made by man has to have a small g and has to be put in quotes. Now, it looks big to us when we see man do amazing things. We're impressed. And there's no doubt that God has allowed for man to do amazing things. And it's glorious. It's glorious because it's something derived by God's gift. 
by man-made, we mean now when we do things independently and want glory for it or think it deserves glory because we believe that we made it happen or we accomplished it or we acquired it. That kind of glory, though, is all around us. It's celebrated everywhere. People are worshipped for the things they do, the things they know, the things they have or could do. And that man-made glory is alluring to us. We, we like important people and important stuff and want to be those people. The lure of man-made glory, it's strong. But it's also distracting because it keeps us distracted from what real glory is. It's damaging because it's not what God designed us for. Our own glory is not what we're here for. And we'll always end up empty when we seek it. And it's futile. It's meaningless. It's groundless, ultimately. Let's start at verse 6, and we'll see how he depicts something I think we'll all relate with as we understand the text. Verse 6, For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune-tellers like the Philistines. He's starting to enumerate the ways in which they have become unfaithful to their God, disloyal. And they strike hands with the children of foreigners. So they're making these alliances and treaties with their safety in mind rather than relying upon God. They're striking up alliances with people they think can help them. Verse 7. Their land is filled with silver and gold. So the Israelites were not in a situation of poverty here. They were wealthy. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Do you see what he's describing them as? They have tons of money. They're super wealthy. They have horses and chariots, meaning they have military might. So why would they be making all these treaties? We can only surmise that they believe that that wealth and that perceived power military, militarily, they need to be maintained. They need to be kept. And we need to have this because it makes us secure and it makes us stable if we have wealth and if we have an army. Uh, we need this. And the only way we can keep this is we need to keep people on our side or the powerful nations, keep them at bay, shake hands with them, make treaties. Whatever we do, we've got to protect our wealth. We've got to stay rich. We've got to stay powerful. Whatever we might need to compromise, that's okay because we've got to stay these two things. Their land, verse 8 says, is filled with idols. Of course it is. They've made all sorts of compromises to this point. They bow down to the work of their hands to what their own fingers have made. And what should God say if we have everything? If we're rich, who is this God to tell us that we should worship him alone? It's the worship of everything that's gotten us all this stuff. Verse 7 and 8 depicts an ascending scale of condemnation as it was pointed out in one writer that I, that I read. Wealth, armaments, and idolatry. Full of things from the east. One such thing was the reliance on fortune tellers, not the word of God. Treaties with foreigners who worship false gods, making the people of God, God contractually obligated to these pagan nations rather than their God who covenanted with them. They were wealthy and comfortable, not sensing their need to trust God. They had abundant horses and chariots, which made them feel secure for the wrong reasons. Their land was filled with idols, created things being worshipped. And worshiping created things is the ultimate sign of apostasy, a forsaking of the only true God. You know, as you read this and you consider this, does this not sound familiar? Uh, devotion to silly fortune tellers, future predictors, or teachers who say they possess the secret knowledge that you need. A wealth that makes us less dependent on God. 
wealth that keeps us busy with spending and buying. Trust in a powerful military to keep us safe. Six, verse 6 to 8 contains something else, something that nations pride themselves on, and we see it in our own land. This idea of broad-minded tolerance. Let's just all get along and we'll all become more prosperous. Financial reserves, military potential, a seeming religious interest. You know, man's glory is exceedingly alluring. We're so caught up in the present that we are blinded to the future. Uh, Who wants to be poor anyways? Who wants to be wanting? Who wants to be weak and vulnerable to others? If we had wealth, we will never have to beg. We'll be secure. If we are strong and weaponized, no one can mess with us. We'll be safe. The lure of man-made glory is strong, it's distracting, and it's damaging. Here's what happens when we trust in the glory of man instead of the glory of God. Verse 9. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Now, this is not a statement of decree. It's a descriptor of how bad the crime is. Certainly, you would not forgive them, as he writes poetically to describe how bad off the sin had become, and it can become. Verse 10, enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. So in other words, those horses and those chariots will not save you from the terror of the Lord, so you better hide in the rocks. Verse 11, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Man cannot stand in the presence of God's glory with his glory, small g. Man must bow down to the glory of God, and he will. God will not tolerate the arrogance of man for long. Verse 12 says, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, against all the uplifted hills, all these places that manifest the power and the glory of man will be brought low. Against every high tower and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish and against all the beautiful craft. Verse 17 sounds a lot like verse 11. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. God's people are guilty of pride here. God opposes the proud. There's pride among the nations. There's pride in worshiping stuff. So full of pride, they cannot worship God. Twice, verse 11 and verse 17 say basically the same thing. That the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The lure of man-made glory is strong, it's distracting, it's damaging, and it's futile. We see in the last verses, verse 18. And the idols shall utterly pass away. The things they were worshiping, devoting themselves to, they pass away. And people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground. From before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. So when he consummates all things and comes down with his judgment on things, there will be no hiding and all this stuff will prove futile. You say that's a long time away. Well, it's not that long away for us as human beings who only live a certain long period of time. We'll realize that quickly. Verse 20, in that day mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats. That's who will be in the caves and the crevices. And these are the unclean animals of all unclean animals. 
hiding from the terror of God, they won't have anything to do with their gold except to give it to the bats. To enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. John Oswalt says in his excellent commentary, human beings who sought to sit on the throne of God will scurry for shelter in the crannies and crevices of the rocks when God, the only God, appears. Before him, who could believe that human beings were of any account at all? The lure of man-made glory is strong, it's distracting, it's damaging, and it's futile. Verse 22 brings this to a climax. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For of what account is he? Stop worrying about man and what man thinks or what man says or what man does or what man says you should get to be happy or what you should worship. Stop valuing the idols that you do not only have to lose but will lose. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For of what account is he? Stop being so impressed by man's glory. What a message to us. It's a message to, to Isaiah in his day, and it's a message to us. The glory of any nation doesn't last that long. The glory of a president or a king or a queen or another world leader is momentary. The glory of past military victories, it's short. The glory of massive buildings or huge feats of construction, they're transient. The glory of Bill Gates or Warren Buffett is fleeting. Remember we used to think Steve Jobs was impressive? You forgot about him already. The glory of a genius CEO or a successful company will pass rapidly. The glory of LeBron James, even if he thinks he's a king, will be short-lived. The glory of Floyd Mayweather cannot be carried around for long in his duffel bag. The glory of a famous rock band goes from Arrowhead to the Sprint Center to the Verizon Wireless Amphitheater to a county fair near you, right? The glory of a soccer player goes from the Italian League to the EPL to MLS fast. That's what happens. That's what happens for everybody. That's the glory of man. The glory of our prime years go by fast as I face my 44th birthday tomorrow. That many of you have been here for a lot of those birthdays, so you can't laugh at me. The glory of our physical condition, no matter how much you work out, will end quickly. The glory of a big house will fade swiftly. The glory of a new car will dissipate as soon as you drive it off the lot. The glory of your kid's tournament trophy will be covered in dust before you're done paying the league fees. And before you're done paying for the watch you bought or the computer you got, your credit card bill will still come and it will lose glory immediately because it won't have enough processing power anymore. The glory of your degrees and your accomplishments will soon vanish. Edward Young, in his commentary, says the greatest need of man is to reject man and humbly live for the glory of God alone. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? This is not a metaphor just for the transience of life, but it also points to the source of life. It is God who in Genesis 2 verse 7 said, or put the breath of man the breath of life into man. The Lord gives the breath of life, and he can take it away. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Man has neither the independent right to live nor a sure stake in life, but the gift of breath implies a giver 
and points to the wisdom of trusting, rather, the one who is the source of life, Alec Moyer wrote. Breath in nostrils denotes a level of weakness in human beings because a breath can stop at any time. In Jeremiah 17.5, that prophet says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Man's condition is frail, it's fading, it's exceedingly transitory. Now, all of this is for the purpose of us realigning and understanding the right way of things. Who is God and who is not? And if we get this picture, like I think the text gives it to us, it will serve to convict us in a way that drives us to that which is eternal. Not the seen things, those things are temporary, but the unseen things which are eternal. And then as Christians, our lives are focused in that direction. Now, nobody perfectly does this. We understand that we struggle with this distraction. That's why we need the Word. The Word comes to us and reminds us, it resets us, and we go from this place with a different uh, endeavor towards living for eternity rather than that which goes by so fast. I'm so grateful that with two funerals, memorials, both were based on people who tried to live this by God's grace to the best of their abilities. And as a result, truly impacted hundreds, maybe thousands of people with this message. But that's not always the case at every funeral. A clear understanding of man's place will safeguard us from tragic misplacement of life priorities. This text exposes us to the reality of our place as human beings. This text drives us to the eternal God for our direction and priorities. And the only way we can know the eternal God is by believing in the one he sent, the one who is forecasted in Isaiah, Jesus himself. The problem found in God's people during Isaiah's day, it's a challenge to us in every age. Will we be more impressed with the fading, transient, temporal glory of man? Or will we be shaped by the eternal glory of of the one true God who has made us alive together with him through Christ. The opening verses of the chapter give us a vision of the impact that the Messiah will make. We can see the beginnings of what Isaiah forecasted even in our own day. The later verses that we just covered give us an honest portrayal of how the glory of man ends up. So I'll close with words that Ray Ortland wrote about this passage. He bids us to relocate our happiness in the future, what God will do then, in a world that doesn't exist yet except in the promise of God. If you do that, you won't be devastated when the idols of human pride are trashed, as they will be. In God, you can possess both the present and the future. As we come alive to God's promised future, we dethrone our idols now, and the Lord alone is exalted within us. May this be true for all of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please fix our eyes on what is eternal. Help us to look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. Lord, it's true. Your word does not lie. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Lord, we have so many choices, and we are so easily distracted. Lord, please give us a vision of your glory in Christ and help us, help us to live our days in that light. In Jesus' name, amen.